Hello, listeners. This is Chris Miller, co-host of your all-time favorite podcast, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. If you like what you hear and you want to lend your support, please go to patreon.com slash trrpod. And for as little as $1 a month, you can receive early access to new episodes as well as exclusive bonus content. That's right, it's a dollar. Come on, you have that much money right now in that weird little gap between your driver's seat and your center console. It's probably rattling around the dryer right now. If you have a dog, there's a good chance that it has eaten that much change at least once in its life. So, for your beloved pet's sake, consider going to patreon.com slash trrpod and giving us that dollar instead. Your dog will thank you, and so will I. And now, on with the show. Does anybody find it ironic that the historical figure who has an actual disco song written about him is probably the guy that would have enjoyed Studio 54 the most. I mean, it does track. Yeah. It does, everybody kind of looked like him. <laughs> it was visibly dirty. There was a lot more glitter at 54, yeah. but other than that, it really wasn't that different. Yeah. I mean, it, he had a look that maybe suited the 60s a little more than the 70s, but... True. You know, uh, it... it hmm. I don't know. But this is—I well, mean—also think of like what the Beatles kind of looked like at this point. Well, that's—I was just going to say. <laughs> yeah, think of uh, George Harrison. All things must pass came out in 1972, and think mm-hmm. of his what he looked like in the front of his record. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the Manson family. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> if the Eagles didn't bathe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love that text, Big Patty, and uh, and Greg. <laughs> I I could honestly see him at Woodstock. Oh, for sure. Ooh, would he have loved Woodstock? He would have loved Woodstock. He would have loved Woodstock. Yeah. Let's, he let's, be loved Woodstock. Yeah. let's be honest. He would have eaten the brown acid. <laughs> <laughs> and it wouldn't have affected him. No, not at all. <laughs> not at all. Welcome to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades, everybody. I am Rob North. I am your co-host, Chris Miller. I am the Padre, Michael Ernett. I am Kyle Graper. And we are joined by a fifth... Willing adventure around the table tonight from the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel. It's our good friend Keith Volhop. Keith, welcome. Hi, thank you. Uh, you are going to be joining us for this big, ambitious series, and uh, it was actually one that I believe you suggested. Yeah, uh, I'd say we got to tip the hat to Keith. This was his idea. Yeah. Friend of the show, Patreon supporter. Um, this, let, just to See, keep giving us yeah. money, and you too could <laughs> be here in the kitchen. You can throw your weight around. <laughs> so, uh, so I'd like to apologize to everybody for... Picking such a long series. Uh, no, it's a no, go- this, it's, this it's, needed. It's all right. It okay. is all right. This is our. You know, we needed something good for our big summer series, and I think you made a pretty good choice. We'll get into what that is in a moment. But Keith, uh, Keith, if you just want to start off by kind of telling us what Thrifty Whiskey is all about. Sure, uh, Thrifty Whiskey is a uh, a YouTube video uh, series that me and my niece's husband. And his friend from uh, high school and college started. Feel, feel free to use their names, Keith. It's fine. We're sure. all friends here. Uh, so Josh is my niece's husband, and Eric is his uh, college friend and roommate. Um, and we all uh, realize that we have a good palate and good taste and good liking for uh, whiskeys. And we also realize that we are not rich enough to go and buy a bottle of uh, Pappy Van Winkle every other week. Mm. Uh, Plus, we live in Pennsylvania, so you can't ever get it anyway. Don't don't even start with that shit, Keith. <laughs> yeah. Believe me, I deal with this nightmare every day. 
So, uh, so we decided that we're going to stick to a more reasonable budget of $30 or less uh, for your whiskey. And we do blind tastings of these whiskeys and let you know what we think and what, uh, whether or not it's a good buy or a good pass. Awesome. So you started this conversation with, you have good taste. Why are you here? <laughs> that, that's a fair question. <laughs> uh, that's, Don't you realize, Keith, that you are among scum? That, that, was, <laughs> that was actually a question I asked myself all night. Uh, I didn't sleep at all because I was just like, what the fuck am I doing here? <laughs> that's the spirit. Uh, the right answer. He's going to fit well. One. He's going to fit in well. So, uh, so anybody who's interested in, in checking out what you do, they can just go onto YouTube and search Thrifty Whiskey, and it'll take them straight to the page? Yes. Um, and we just recently shot, I think, like our 105th episode or wow. something like that. I'm not the statistician of our show, so I really have no idea. I'm more history-minded, which means math sucks. Um, <laughs> Once they started putting letters in it, that was it for me. I was yeah. done. I checked out. What do you do when you get to Galileo then? Oh, That's um, kind of a crossbreed there. Yeah, uh, I don't know. I am kind of science minded at the same time, <laughs> which is really weird. Math sucks, but science is cool. Uh, <laughs> no, I get it. Yeah. Oh no, I understand. Yeah, just don't ask me to do chemistry, um, calculus. I hate physics. I enjoy. Yeah, having college flashbacks. <laughs> uh, also, we'll, uh, I think we'll definitely include a, a link to the channel's page in the show notes. I think we can do that quite easily. Oh, without question. Excellent, excellent. Yep. So, shall we do the big reveal of what our... Uh, well, anybody who was actually listening to the intro, I think you have a good idea of who we're talking about. We'll probably say it in, in, in the byline here. Yeah, that is true. Cat um, Stevens. <laughs> no, this is everybody's Yousef favorite. Salam. This is everybody's favorite dirty, long-haired master of the occult, Doctor Michael Morbius. Brought to you by Sony Pictures Entertainment. It's Morbin time. <laughs> so, I am not letting that die. If we start the memes, do you think they'll release it again? Well, they they, they released it, and the pirates started winning. So that's what I said. They were undefeated since it made eighty-two dollars per theater, yeah. and it's really not per showing per, per theater. theater. Over a weekend. <laughs> so is this like the uh, Mighty Morbius Power Rangers? It or? is now. Uh, okay. Nice. So that's the sequel. No spoilers. <laughs> I saw both Venoms on opening night, and I haven't even seen this movie. <laughs> so today we are, as I said, kicking off our big summer series. It's one that we've been talking about since the inception of this podcast as a potential subject, and it is, of course, by request of Keith Volhop, friend of the show here present, that we are now tackling this individual. Now, we've taken our time with this subject, and we knew we had to save it for a big series, and the scale of the research has risen to match. Now, I thought we'd hit an upper limit of material covered in our four-part series on Justinian and the happenings of his time, and this beats it by a country mile. Yeah, I was thinking about all the all the source material and the amount of, like, there's the five of us. It's a little over 10,000 pages mm -hmm. of source material for this. Yeah, yeah, but it, it's not surprising, because though, because this is a subject that ticks almost every single box that we love on this show. It, this is somebody with an outsized personality, some truly odd personality traits. It's somebody who's practically overflowing with ambition, someone whose appetites are, shall we say, significant, both in terms of drink and carnality, somebody with a weird and ridiculous backstory. We have elements of con artistry and flim-flammery. It's someone who ensconced themselves into the corridors of power at a time when those corridors were filled with many, many metric tons of fuck-up. We deal with Russian empresses. And yes, and someone who had a role to play in massive, crucial, and even cataclysmic world events. Now, this old. 
Now, this subject is none other than Grigory Yefimovich Rasputin. Now, if you've somehow been living under a rock since the mid-1910s and by some miracle have no idea of who Rasputin is, Grigory Rasputin, known to some as the Mad Monk, the Dark Monk, or simply Grishka to his friends, was a mystic and holy man who managed to, from very modest beginnings, worm his way into the Russian imperial family as a healer and spiritual advisor at the beginning of the 20th century, seemingly working miracles whilst at the same time creating great controversy for a regime that was already struggling to stay on top of Russia's many, many problems, and potentially playing a role in bringing down the Romanov dynasty and bringing about the inception of the Soviet Union and international communism. Now, the story of Rasputin is one that is mixed up in rumor, intrigue, and hearsay from his humble origins all the way through to his very bad end, and separating fact from fiction is going to be a challenge in this series. But it's one that we will attempt to surmount with our usual vigor. However, there's also going to be plenty of truth is stranger than fiction moments, and we'll also be exploring many of the sweeping events within Russia and worldwide, as well as the, as well as the cultural forces of the time that helped to determine the course of events of Rasputin's life. I'm sorry, you said hearsay and you totally lost me. I just had flashbacks of the whole Depp trial. Uh, <laughs> everything I learned about that was against my fucking will. Uh, what a load of shit. Oh I, my god. I didn't think it was possible to dislike two people that I already disliked more, but here we are. It's it, And doing what we do, every time somebody sees us at the ballpark in full regalia, somebody yells Johnny Depp, and it just hurts that much more now. What's this going to do for Bill Coleman's career? Ooh, yeah. Well, it's a good thing Johnny won. Now yeah, I have to do thing, it. Yeah, <laughs> Coleman's going to be walking around thinking he's owed thirteen million. God bless him. <laughs> God bless Bill Coleman. Yeah. I love that man. So over the next series of I episodes, think, oops, sorry, I, 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 I was only going to add that I, I think the only thing that was funny about that trial was when uh, Johnny Depp was on the stage and or was on the stage. No, no, no. You were right with yeah, stage. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and, Freud was and, right. Yeah. And in the in uh, Heard's attorney said. Did you put cocaine in this box? And he looks at this box. He says, no, but it looks like a good box to put cocaine in. <laughs> <laughs> the, the fact that they were trying to like astound everybody, flabbergasting with the fact that Johnny Depp drinks and does drugs. He lived with Hunter S. Thompson. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, we know. <laughs> we fucking know. And that's not a bad subject for a future episode. So, over the next series of episodes, we'll be looking at things from the down and dirty, on the ground, in the stank level of Rasputin's goings-on, and from the 30,000-foot level, viewing wider events to show that not only was Rasputin experiencing a world in a time of great flux, he was also representative of it. Now, our job in this series is to tell the story of the man as he was, and to dispel some of the myths surrounding him, trying to undo a lot of the work of his detractors from the final days of Tsarist Russia, who sought to undermine his influence, and those detractors from the days of the Soviet Union who sought to paint him as a symptom of rule by a decadent bourgeoisie, all while still showing how flawed, ambitious, and decadent Rasputin himself actually was. And we get to use the word Archimandrite. Yes! <laughs> and yes. In, in all those things were said while they were uh, the Soviet Union was being run by people that were part of the decadent bourgeoisie. Mm -hmm. so. This is true. Uh, also, as an aside before we begin, I had somebody bring this up to me that I mentioned that we were about to start our series on Rasputin. He basically asked me, are you concerned that people who may have a problem with you covering a Russian subject considering what's going on in the world right now? I think the answer to that is, uh, no. Yeah, <laughs> no, simple. I'm, I'm no, good. We're, we're separated by a century here. Like, 
if, 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 you ha- if you've got an issue with us covering a historical Russian topic because of modern Russian activities, um, too bad. I mean, and Marjorie Taylor Greene might, might not love it, but, you know. Well, she's well, not exactly our target demographic, uh, is she? Right. Chris? She's going to have a hard time Googling our name whenever I'm not 100% sure she can read. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, it, 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 the whole Russian history is in a, in a peach tree dish. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Jesus fucking Christ. Well, we, we, well, we will be Jesus. talking about this it. woman makes laws for you people. Right, okay, yeah. understand that, listeners. Well, we we will end up talking about the the czarist uh, the czarist regime's own version of the Gazpacho police. So, <laughs> so oh I'm done. I'm done talking. You so guys while, do whatever. I'm so gonna go watch sure, it justified. So while we're fairly sure that she can't read, we can, and that's a good time to talk about our sources. So, uh, we have several uh, major sources here. The first, and I think we all dug into this one pretty healthily, uh, it's called Rasputin, Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith. I love this book. It's a fascinating book. It's it really an is. excellent book. It's, it, it, like, we always encourage, we, we, we give our, our literary sources because we want you to go out and actually buy these books and support these authors and read their work. If I had to, if you have to pick one work from our list of sources for this this series, go out and get Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs by Douglas Smith. It is an incredible work of historical nonfiction. And he's uh, an excellent writer. Like yes. He weaves a narrative into it. Uh, very, like I, I always bring up David McCullough when we talk about this mm-hmm. because he's my favorite author from Pittsburgh and one of my favorite nonfiction history authors ever. Uh, just, he paints this this subject in a way that is so impossibly approachable Whenever it is so impossibly vast. Yes. He covers basic history of the entire czarist regime, but he focuses, like, and it's just the way he does it. He hits on the, the, the pertinent points and he weaves them into an actual story. It is phenomenal, and I recommend reading it. He, Douglas Smith has a way of writing in a way that is both broad and focused at the same time. Yeah. And, it's, and that's what makes this book so, so good, is you can focus in on the on the minutia of certain events and still never lose sight of what's going on in the wider world. And, and not only that, he brought in certain people. I, I, uh, I trying to refrain from calling them characters, but he brings in certain people, just like full chapters about certain people that actually helped mold what was going on in the, uh, in the whole regime. It's it's like a Tarantino film in, in which he, he really does build these entire scenes around supporting characters. I yeah. almost said it was like Family Guy. I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, another primary source we have is Rasputin, The Untold Story by Joseph Furman, which, aside from the problem I have with the title, because if it's a, a full book that's being told, why is it The Untold Story? But that's that's beside the point. I, I have a minor beef with this guy, and, and I'll, yeah. after you, you read this down, I'll, um, I'll, I'll see if you notice it. It contains too. good information, it contains good narrative, but uh, I'm still going to put Faith, Power, and the Twilight of the Romanovs on top of this one. The one thing I will say about Furman's work, and we we covered before, Rob had already mentioned, there's a lot of a lot of hearsay, there's a lot of things about Rasputin that, that are taken as fact that probably are not. Uh, but every time Furman covers one of these, he phrases it in a really particular way. Like one is, and I cannot elaborate any further on that subject. <laughs> yeah, but like every time, and it's just funny. He, he plays it very coy. <laughs> right. I can I can elaborate no further on that subject. Just be like, that eh, might not be true. Like nobody yeah. cares. It's not the million little pieces guy. <laughs> it's like, well, this is what I heard. <laughs> so so some of my other literary sources were Nicholas and Alexandra: The Fall of the Romanov Dynasty by Robert Massey, Nicholas II: The Last of the Tsars by Mark Farrow. 
uh, which which reads a little awkwardly because Mark Farrow is actually a uh, French author, and this is a translation from the French. Uh, we also have To Kill Rasputin by Andrew Cook. Um, I don't even have time to get into the individual letters, uh, articles, journals uh, that I found or were sent to me. Uh, also, while I don't cl- like claiming podcasts as source material, I will make an exception here in the case of Dan Carlin's Hardcore History, uh, specifically part four of his series on the First World War. Because it, it, like, I, I think every single episode he does is a creative triumph, in my opinion. He, it's also a book. It's, I yeah. mean, honestly, you could take his words, transcribe <laughs> his, them, and turn it into a His episodes book. are a are four to six hours long. But yeah, part four of his series on, on World War One is... He does a fantastic job with the story of the Russian experience in the Great War. Uh, I'd also um, like to kick it over to you guys. Uh, any other sources you'd like to talk about? Oh, I got a ton. <laughs> uh, Take it in, away, Keith. In addition to, uh, to who you mentioned, I also have Rasputin, the Saint Who Sinned by Brian Moynihan. Uh, is that is that the same guy who wrote Lords of Chaos? Brian Moynihan. Another Moynihan. I have it right sitting in the room. Somewhere. No, that's Michael Moynihan who wrote Lords of Chaos. Never mind. Sorry, Keith. Yeah, Continue. no, it was Dietrich Soderlund and A. Yeah. Moynihan. You're thinking about the one that was in Lord of the Rings. It was Bobby Moynihan. It was the guy <laughs> from Tom Moynihan. <laughs> the guy from SNL. And and also an author that I really fell in love with with uh, with this topic was uh, Edward Redzinski. Uh, who I've got two sources from him, the Rasputin file and Rasputin the last word. Now the Rasputin file is something that I was really intrigued with because it looked at uh, Rasputin pre-Glasnost, Rasputin post-Glasnost, and the difference between the two guys. So how he was viewed in the Soviet environment versus the post-Soviet environment, essentially. Correct. Excellent. Uh, well, pre, pre-communist, post-communist. Yeah. Yes. Excellent. Excellent. I love that. Uh, anything else to add? I, well, I got before. nothing other than my hilarious aside about Furman <laughs> not not being willing to be like, well, this might not be true. Uh, so before we do go on, I do want to thank a, a few of the following individuals for their assistance and correspondence with me over the last few months putting this all together. Uh, Dr. Alyssa Klotz, Assistant Professor of Russian History at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, Dr. Janie Burns, Professor of European History at Point Park University. Dr. Erica Haber, Professor, uh, professor of Russian Language and Culture at Syracuse University. And uh, the Pride of Squirrel Hill, Dr. Michael Nyberg, Professor of First World War History at the United States Army War College. I want to extend a big thank you to all of the above for your assistance in my research process. I thought I was the pride of Squirrel Hill since I got the new job. That son of a bitch. Nyberg (laughs) got me again. (laughs) You win again, Nyberg. (laughs) So was I wrong to do all my research through the Steele dossier? Uh, I just listened to that song like 30 times. I think I got it. (laughs) Uh, Guile, your your research process. There's a, a exceptional modern folklorist uh, who goes by Mike Bignola and his uh, brilliant work, Seed of Destruction, about the later, 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 later life of Rasputin. <laughs> <laughs> it's exceptional. Also, um, I believe there were a couple films. Yeah, there's some uh, documentary, yes, documentary films. Documentary series, films. Uh, Kingsman. Uh, whatever the fuck the new one was called. Very good. <laughs> and there was one by, I believe, a Spanish fellow. A, yeah. uh, oh, a uh, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> yeah. Renowned, renowned historical author Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> yeah, if you guys haven't seen Hellboy, it's sweet. <laughs> like, that movie fucking rules. So, uh, so I want to begin today by really asking you, Keith, uh, why Rasputin? 
Okay, so uh, as I mentioned before, I was a social studies uh, uh, certified teacher. Um, and uh, during one of my history classes, we were talking about Russia during World War I and studying the geography of Russia. And the story of Rasputin came up in, in my topic. And of course, you know, I had to really, really, really water it down to a bunch of high school kids. Um, <laughs> no mention of certain appendages and jars. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, I've seen that. Nobody <laughs> will ever convince me that it's fake. No one. <laughs> I got bad news, but we'll get to that. Fuck that. But no. No. That's revisionist history. This is you and the rest of the fucking commies. Uh, <laughs> that's where we end the series. Uh, I'm going to say the, the certain appendage in the jar most likely belongs to a horse. I'm not going to say whose horse. A Mike. horse? Okay. <laughs> oh, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Hold on. Wait a minute. Michael, I'm gonna stop you. I'm gonna stop you right there. Because look, while I acknowledge that jokes about a, a certain Romanov uh, Zarina and her her equine carnalities are part of the the meat and drink of the more puerile parts of this podcast's humor. We're doing a Russian epi- uh, series. We're talking about Russian subject matter. I think at this point it's kind of low hanging fruit. So I feel I feel the need <laughs> low hanging. <laughs> I, feel, I saw that. I, I saw that. I saw that jar, man. I feel it's, the it's, need. It's pretty low. <laughs> I feel the need. And no, I feel the obligation to institute a a system. Of rationing for Catherine the Great jokes, I am putting you I'm all. I'm being impressed. I'm, I'm being putting, canceled. <laughs> I'm putting you all. I'm putting she goes there. I'm, I'm goddamn Louis C.K. over here. <laughs> I'm putting. Like, you get your dick away, goddamn it! The only thing, like, no, none of for us. God's sake, Mike, don't do it in the doing. potted plant. <laughs> so, hey, you asked permission. So, if, if 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 I may demonstrate, Kyle, the whiteboard. I'm gonna, I'm gonna. So you all know at home, it's real. So, I'm holding you all to a strict one Catherine the Great joke per episode limit. Uh, I have a picture. This is going up yes. on Instagram. Ex- excellent. Okay. I am also because because I am kind. I'm also giving you a series mulligan, okay. a bonus Catherine the Great joke that you can use at any point. Just know you don't get it back. Right, I understand that. Now I, I can see the disappointment in your eyes, Michael. So you know what? I, I will be. I will be even. Uh, I will be a, even even more uh, benevolent and and benevolent God. If you do not use your one joke per episode, okay, I will allow it to carry over into the series Mulligan pool. Oh my God, Padre, are you going to wait until the last one? Just ruin it. Okay. If you want you to do that, wait, I'm on that I team. If you want to do that, that's your prerogative. Just okay, it, so dude. Don't could, disappoint yeah. me, Michael. Okay. Don't give him the goddamn satisfaction, Padre. <laughs> it's gonna be, it's gonna be really, really hard. <laughs> Just, like right it is. Just like the horse. Just like the horse. Because you're a guest. Hey, because hey, if anybody else, oh, well, here's because the other thing. Guest, I can else, say horse as many times yeah, as yeah, I, I horse want. As many times I can as say want. Catherine the Great as many times as I want. I just have to trod that line. Near, near <laughs> the twain well, shall meet. No, you guys can make as many as you want, right? No, 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 no. no. This is for uh, everybody. It's over. Oh, if you, if I'm not something. saying shit. I'm gonna wait. I almost made one first, and I thought better of we, it because we, I saw the whiteboard. Boys, we live as a team. We die as a team. <laughs> So it, it, this all is for I'm everybody. saying is if you if, if you ruin if you ruin my series ender by making Catherine the great jokes, I'm punching you square in the balls. That's fair, <laughs> totally fair. Okay. I'm not saying that's shit. fair. I was the I'm one who made up the rule. For you man, right. okay. I was the one who made up the rule. It'd be a shame if I did not hold myself to the same standard. Okay. 
I'm, so I'm, wait, I'm this, so sorry that uh, go, go on. Keith. Is this one joke per person per episode? No. One joke no. per episode. One Don't joke fuck per this episode. Up. Okay. So I'm very sorry, Keith. We interrupted you when you were talking about why you are so fascinated okay. with uh, with Rasputin. No, that's fine. Now. That's fine. Um, so it, you know, just the story of Rasputin and uh, the basically the way I was telling it to these high school kids is you got a guy that's in the in the depths of the Russian throne, has the czar's ear, uh, healing his kids, has full access to the court, pretty much, and uh, somebody tried to kill him, and he survived. And then they tried to kill him again, pretty much the same method, and it finally got him, and it was just like, wow, this is really, really weird. So you just should have shown him the Princess Bride. They they go over <laughs> yeah, that whole he thing. He was only mostly dead after the first one. Right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, just kind of put that on the back burner. And then a few years later, uh, I met my now daughter Anastasia, who was named after Anastasia Romanoff, and that really really piqued my interest even more into the whole Romanoff family and uh, and dynasty. Romanoff family dynasty and uh, Rasputin story in itself. And so you, you have a, an educational background in history. You mentioned that you got qualified as a history teacher. You studied history in college, correct? Yes. And, and was like 20th century European history kind of a focus of yours or a particular fascination to you? Actually, no. I was uh, more interested in the Seven Years War, war or French Indian War, whichever. The First World War. <laughs> the true first world war, yeah, right? Yeah, no, I mean, you're not wrong. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I actually, uh, like, I started with uh, uh, interest in the Civil War, as every history buff out there does, and just kind of moved on from there. I, I started wanting to learn more about what led us to the Civil War, got interested in African-American history and slavery, and uh, from there, I was just kept going further and further back into U.S. history. Uh, almost. And you ended up in Ptolemy. Yep. Okay. <laughs> you know, Keith, it's interesting you say that, um, like every history buff, you start in the Civil War. I have addressed this in multiple episodes. My midlife crisis has not been to get into the Civil War. It's instead smoking meats. So I know, like, Which you have was to done pick, during you the have Civil to pick War. One, You're still one there, or the other. Look, hey, look, I'm just out here. I bought the smoker. I'm just throwing shit on the grill. Like, well, but you're, then, 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 then that, my, that's the my one father, I missed. My father and my brother and I went, went into our midlife crisis when we were 12. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I pretty much felt like my midlife crisis should have been around 12. <laughs> yeah. It was a very, very rambunctious <laughs> 20s for me. <laughs> I, I think my, my, uh, my start into my interest in history was uh, somewhere in the mid-90s. And oddly enough, that's right about when Gettysburg came out, the mm. movie. And I was like, this is a really, really, really decent movie. That's and my boat. <laughs> so, well, I, I actually had a question about this because I know that you were in you were in the military in the what late '80s, early '90s, uh, throughout the '90s, throughout the '90s. Okay, and and I, I, yeah, because I was wondering, I'm like, so why was Keith so interested in Russia? Because I knew that you know if you were in the military at a certain point, there was highly possible that you were going to be based in Germany. You're looking across the Falta Gap at the Soviet Union. Like, I know I actually know a few guys who were really really fascinated with Russian history because they were based in Europe in the Cold War, specifically in, in West Germany. Um, yeah, I was, I was wondering what the connection was. And, and so it just kind of came out of just 
loving history long enough until you got around to, to World War One Russia. Yeah, because by time, by time I actually joined the uh, military, uh, Army Corps of Engineers, SAONS fellow. Um, by time I got into that, uh, Mr. Gorbachev had already torn down that wall. So, okay, yeah, I was I was just wondering, and and so what. And so you mentioned like the story of Rasputin. Is there anything about the man himself, really, that that draws you in? That made you that made you want to kind of bring this story to us to tell? Uh, the and, more and with the more I looked into him and learned about him, I was like, I know you guys really study and concentrate on the darker folks of history and, and giant dogs. Yeah, and I thought... Giant dogs. Yeah, definitely. Giant dogs. Giant dogs. Yeah, and uh, I thought if there's anyone that represents the Dong Dynasty, it's... <laughs> I would have said Hank Aaron, but... Oh, God. I, I'm upset now. I'm spent upset. hours and hours and hours and hours in, reach, in researching this. And we're already making dick checks. I, 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 <laughs> I did not fully build my cat corral for this one. <laughs> I'm setting myself up for failure. Well, but, I'm, just, I'm impressed because you just told this beautiful story about how you fell into Russian history. And uh, so my history concentration at Pitt was post-revolution uh, Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that was because I thought the Ukrainian girls were really cute. <laughs> I mean, at least you're honest. That's fair. I, I mean, for well, me, and you're a communist, so yeah. <laughs> how many Russian? <laughs> how many Russian brides did Kyle buy? I'm putting well, the over under at five. I was going to say now is dirt cheap. <laughs> you just, yeah, he's waiting for the floor. The key is you send them back before the thirty days hits. Your credit card gets charged back. Once like, once they admit it, Kyle, you're waiting for the floor. Out of Swift, the bottom dropped out on it. <laughs> <laughs> but but also to uh, to touch on the little bit of Russian history that I did have uh, that kind of got me leaning towards it even more was uh, when I was in the military. Even though I was not involved with Russia itself, uh, you said Ukrainian girls. While I was at Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, I ended up staying on a Ukrainian cruise ship as my barracks for like eight months. And <laughs> I, uh, this ooh, was there's uh, a visual. <laughs> it was a. Uh, it, it was actually a luxury cruise liner in 1965 Ukrainian Russian standards. Um, actually, if you looked in the corners of some of these staterooms, you could still see areas, still see areas where they had microphones and and all wow. kinds of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. yeah, it was That's it was really weird. And there was so much lead paint in that shit. Like the lights oh, yeah. aren't actually on in the kitchen. Keith yeah. is radioactive. <laughs> um, I, I actually want to give a shout out to some of my uh, army buddies that may be listening to this podcast because uh, be. I'm going to advertise it to them as well. Awesome. Um, you know, long live the Ivan Franco guys. Uh, <laughs> Wait, it was called the Ivan Franco. Like, damn, that's like <laughs> it was called the Ivan Franco. It's so on yes, brand. <laughs> yes, it was called Royal the Ivan Sarinas Franco cruise line. Who, who was <laughs> Ukrainian cruise ship in the 1990? <laughs> Here comes sovereign debt restructuring. <laughs> like, I love it. How the fuck did it end up in Cuba? 
Okay, so um, <laughs> I, I know we have other R- stuff to talk about, no, no, but no, no, I want to hear this. Yeah. I'm not exactly done. So the reason we ended up in Cuba during this, it, it was definitely not the uh, the post 9/11 camps that were there. Uh, one of do the you Haitian... have to say that? <laughs> no, no, oh, okay. I do not. Um, one of the Haitian revolutions in the 90s of I think there were four or five. I I lost count. Is this a big one back in '94? Uh, yes. Mm. yes. That's the one that gave me tuberculosis. Yes, they had that one. And then at this... That story's next. <laughs> so, uh... Kyle, they... Chris, and I were seven. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So I might have been eight. We had Haitian boat people that were trying to get to Florida. Coast Guard was picking them up, had nowhere to send them. So we're like, hey, we got this great big naval base right in Cuba. Let's uh, build some refugee camps there. Well, right around the same time, Clinton, in all of his uh, splendor as a president, made the decision to close off the Florida border to Cuban refugees as mm. well. All right. And uh, they decided that, hey, we got this nice naval base in Guantanamo Bay. Why don't we just send the Cuban refugees there? Um, if you're any way shape or form involved in caribbean politics at all you will know that cuban people and haitian people do not get along and not none of the islands get along right those two but really don't get along yes (laughs) yes and uh the united nations in their uh awesome decision making powers decided that hey why don't we put haitian camps right next to the cuban camps and we'll just separate them by a piece of concertina wire and then they also decided hey this looks too much like a concentration camp why don't we put camouflage netting over top of the concertina wire to make it look more like hedgerows which totally (laughs) jesus (laughs) and in the meantime God bless the DOD. Oh, yeah. And in the meantime, the United States Navy was scooping up different refugees. They ran out of room where you guys were at. Sent them to Panama. Well, exactly. Yep. However, if there was a law in the books at the time that if you performed an invasive procedure on any person, they would receive asylum. Now, I was a hospital corpsman. I'm stationed at Bethesda Naval Hospital. All of a sudden, these 45, 50-year-old guys are in the ocean, and they start getting chest pain. We called it coming to America chest pain, because they knew that if they got a cardiac catheterization, they were here forever. We couldn't send them back to Cuba or Haitia, or Haitia, Haiti. (laughs) Um, So we ended up with wards, and I worked in the cardiac care ward. We worked with, with... wards full of these people they also had tuberculosis oh wow so i was exposed to tuberculosis which is the funny this is the connection it's the we funny had beyond part baseball. of this whole story yeah. <laughs> so, and that was gen x uncle corner with stories from the 90s <laughs> no i just find it funny yeah. that, they, that, that the two of us know each other and we were working on the same project yeah, yeah. um so Anyway, with these massive refugee camps in Guantanamo Bay, there was no room to house the troops, so they rented cruise ships to bring in to to sit Mm -hmm. at port to use as barracks for us. And this Ukrainian cruise ship was one of them that they rented. Mm -hmm. We ended up staying there. 
Um, funny story to the Army guys, I'm going to give a shout out to Robert Sterling, who accidentally almost burnt down the British cruise ship that we got in replacement <laughs> for the <laughs> Ivan Franco. I... <laughs> Let's save that one for the Patreon later in the series. Yeah. We've, got, we've got at least four more yeah. four more episodes about Rasputin, who but, we just kind of started talking about. Yeah, yeah we haven't really gotten to Rasputin So back, yet, back so. to the story of the guy yeah. who is essentially a satyr meets Forrest Gump. Love you, Sterling. <laughs> but, I feel uh, like I love that guy, too. Yeah. <laughs> I don't even know. This is a story I can't wait to hear. Put him down the fucking ship. <laughs> funny, but I, I, I think we must soldier on. Um, so I want to begin this series narrative by having us cast ourselves back to Russia a decade into the 20th century. Now, Russia at this time was a massive standing contradiction, being in at the same time very much like its other European imperial powers and in so many ways set very much apart. So Russia had, like most U- European powers, a ruling royal family, and that family was the Romanovs. By the time Rasputin entered the royal household, the Romanov dynasty was coming up on 300 years of ruling in Russia, starting with the ascension to the throne of Mikhail I in 1613. The ruling line remained unbroken to, through to the time of our story, and the previous three centuries had seen Russia come together and massively expand all the way to the Pacific. Now, wars and diplomacy had seen the lands of Russia expand and contract, but mostly expand, and what had been a fairly disparate series of various semi-nomadic steppe tribes and mountain peoples had coalesced by the 1900s into a massive nation-state, thanks to the efforts of Romanov rulers like Peter I, a.k.a. Peter the Great, and Catherine II, a.k.a. Catherine the Great. That's a freebie there, fellas. By the time of our story... The sitting monarch was Tsar Nicholas II, ruling alongside his German wife, Tsarina Alexandra. Now, much like most of the European powers, the ruling family lived in great wealth and opulence and was heavily interconnected through marriage and familial ties to the other ruling houses of Europe. For example, Tsar Nicholas was first cousins with the King of England, George V, and the German Kaiser Wilhelm II. Michael, I can see you tensing up. I really somewhere and I just keep don't going. don't just keep don't going. do it keep going. don't do it just keep be going. strong just, just padre be strong this be strong is why for I, me this is why I knew I was going to have so much fun <laughs> so russia also had a national legislature much like the other world powers but while some had uh, significant governing power like the french national assembly or the british parliament russia's parliamentary body known as the duma was more like japan or germany in that its powers of govern- governance were very very limited almost to the point of being non-existent and most political decisions came from the top down by fiat of the czar now much like the other powers russia was industrializing itself and was developing a more modern military or at least trying to this however is pretty much where the similarities between russia and the other powers end now Ru- now let's get into what made russia different now russia was simply put enormous both in terms of geography and population you guys want a fun Russia fact? Go for it. The distance from Chicago, Illinois to St. Petersburg is the same distance from St. Petersburg to Vladivostok. Yep. That's, That's a big fucking country. <laughs> it <laughs> <Yeah>. is. <laughs> it is. That is a big fucking country. And Russia in the early 20th century was actually bigger than Russia is today, stretching from what's now central Poland all the way to the Pacific, over 6,500 miles across and nearly 3,000 miles north to south. That just means my company would have had to sell off more restaurants. <laughs> <laughs> That'll fix them. Yeah. That'll take the wind out of their sails. Take that one, Ivan. Now, what are now the Baltic states were Russian territory, as was Finland, as were what we now know as the former Soviet republics, places like Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Kyrgyzstan and so forth. Uh, Russia also had the largest population of any nation on Earth at the time, about 166 million people in 1914. That's about 9% of the world's total population, and it had three times the population of any of its closest rivals. 
Now, while the combined populations of the whole British or French empires might get close or even exceed that number, we're talking about Russia alone. And speaking of empires, the Russian Empire in the early 20th century didn't exactly resemble its rivals like the British, the French, or even the Germans. Because Russia had to spend so much damn time taking and consolidating its land gains in what was its main continental mass, it was late to the game and uh, to the game of transoceanic empire, and it didn't really take the approach that other European powers did by grabbing territory in Africa, the Americas, or South Asia. Now, Russia's holdings were limited to Alaska once upon a time, until we in the U.S. bought it for a song, uh, a few islands off its Pacific coast close to Japan, and some strategic ports in what's now northeast China. Now, while it didn't have the hundreds of various territories in every time zone like the British Empire, I still think it's appropriate to consider the Russians to be an imperial power at this time because of the sheer vastness of its Eurasian territory and the sheer variance of cultures, ethnicities, and languages that the other empires also contained. Russia didn't have to engage in transoceanic imperialism to have a patchwork population. Now, the socioeconomic makeup of Russia was vastly different from its contemporary imperial powers as well. Russia was much poorer than the other empires, both in terms of resources and in terms of trade. Russian GDP per capita in 1910 was less than one-eighth that of the United States, which still had yet to achieve its great wealth boom. Well, right now, their GDP is only twice as big as the state of Florida. Mm -hmm. They're still a poor country. Well, I mean, it, the United States in 1910 hadn't had its great wealth explosion, which came out of the First World War. That, that's yeah. a story for another time. Now, I mentioned before that Russia was industrializing, but while it had railroads and factories and steam-powered shipyards and the like, it hadn't happened at anywhere near the same rate as things had gone in the previous century in Britain, Germany, and America. Now, Russia was still a highly agrarian society, even by the different standards of the time. It had a much lower population of ur uh, lower proportion of urban population than other nations, and because of its massive size, uh, and greatly lower uh, it had a greatly lower population density overall. Now, in addition, while the Russian aristocracy was very, very rich indeed, the wealth gap between the average non-aristocratic Russian and the upper class was far, far higher than any other major nation. Now, in the other world powers, rising rates of literacy and education and growing towns and cities had given rise to a rapidly expanding middle class. In Russia, this middle class was a razor-thin proportion of the population, probably less than one-third of one percent. The Russian population overall had less than a quarter of the literacy rate of Great Britain and a life expectancy 15 years lower. Now, Russia was seen by the rest of Europe and the developed world at the time as a social, cultural, and industrial backwater, as a backwards place stuck in previous centuries. Social philosophers would use Russia as the model to avoid when they would talk about progress. And, and it's not like Russia was completely devoid of culture and progress. I mean, this is the nation of Anton Chekhov, Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, and the Bolshoi Ballet, the paintings of Ivan Shishkin and Valentin Serov, the poetry of Alexander Pushkin, of Fabergé eggs. Electric trams, caterpillar tracks, and the combine harvester were all recent Russian inventions. The first Tolstoy. effective... Tolstoy. Leo Tolstoy. You know, it's... And, and uh, actually, the first effective color photography had been developed in Russia, and one of those famous first color photographs was taken in 1912 of Rasputin's hometown of Prokofskoya by Sergei Prokudin-Gorsky, which I think we can share on the social media account. I... We should find it. It's it's actually really I, fascinating. I sent you a copy of yeah. that. I, I was going to say, I know, I, I know I've seen it. Yeah. But these were outliers. Their work often more appreciated abroad than at home, and the vast majority of people saw their lives going nowhere fast. And while there were desperately poor people in every industrialized nation, for the Russian peasant farmer, it was a vastly different ballgame. In Russia, for the peasant population, what existed was essentially the last forms of medieval feudalism. 
A Russian peasant farmer or factory worker lived in a system of social stratification that was more like life in the 1200s rather than the 1900s for several reasons. For peasant farmers, aristocratic landowners owned vast swathes of land that the peasants farmed and paid a tithe to the landowner. They had no freedom of movement, and unless they were given permission, they couldn't leave the estate they were dedicated to working on. If you were a factory worker, your factory was owned by an aristocrat who determined your wage, your hours, and whether you were free to leave to seek new employment. There was no such thing as unions, guilds, or anything like that. You'd likely have no access to quality medical care except for local healers and wise women. Your access to education was limited to if your parents could afford to send you to the local church-run or village schoolhouse. And even then, education beyond about a fifth grade level was almost unheard of. Social mobility was a distant idea, and the social stratus in which you were born was almost entirely to, certain to be the one in which you died. Well, it was, it was essentially slavery. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they were, they were treated slavery like... slavery without the chattel name. Yeah. It was European serfdom. It really, really was. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was this holdover from the medieval period. The only opportunity for advancement might be a life in the Russian Orthodox Church, which functioned in many ways like the church did in most of medieval Europe. It wielded an outsized amount of power and influence demanded a tithe from the population, controlled the legal system in more provincial areas, and had full control over the social and moral compass of the population. Now, turn of the century, Russia also wasn't a good place to be a Jew, either. While Nicholas and Alexander weren't especially anti-Semitic, at least by the standards of the time, the body that was virulently so was the Russian church. Their anti-Semitism spread not from the political conspiratorial stance against international Jewry that would form in later decades, but from a good old-fashioned, they-killed-our-savior religious stance. But uh, nothing like blood libel. Yeah. But what made this especially dangerous was the fact that because of their outsized power, the church had in running government affairs, clerics could commandeer police and military forces to conduct terrifying pogroms against the Jewish population, harassing, attacking, displacing, and often killing large groups of the Jewish population. Now, the same went for some of the Muslim populations down in Russia's more southerly territories. Now, because of the church's stamp of approval, there wasn't much uh, in, that the secular leaders could do about it, but just how secular this leadership was is a matter of some debate, because the office of the Russian Tsar was still the biggest remaining example of the old idea of the divine right of kings. Now, while George V or Wilhelm II had some stuff in their coronation about being imbued by God with this office, yada, 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 for Nicholas, it was seen as being a true conduit between God and man, a stark physical manifestation of God's will on earth, and someone whose judgment was infallible because Nicholas was, in essence, a divine being, a living saint seen as a religious figure pretty much on par with that of the patriarch of the Orthodox Church. Now, this extended and filtered down into the rank pyramid of the aristocracy, becoming further away from divine demigodhood the lower you went, but still retaining the, an essence of the idea that to go against the aristocracy was to go against God himself. And this is just one of the key ideas that the Russian peasant population was instilled with in their religious identity. Poor Russians were generally very religious, as it was the only thing that gave them any solace in their lot in life. They believed heavily in the idea that suffering in this life was necessary because it paved the way to paradise in the next. That all the things they went through, from losing 80% of your kids in childhood to the starvation that could come from a poor harvest, was all God's love for the poor. That it was his will that they stay poor and suffer to maintain the divinely inspired social order. Well, the czars were the ones who said, and, and they all said this upon their coronation, that the, the heart of the czar was in God's hands. Mm -hmm. So... God spoke directly to the Tsar. So the people would listen when the Tsar spoke. They put themselves as the conduit. They put themselves right smack in the middle of it. So it, everything good that happened, boom, 
It's this guy. It's the czar. We've seen it before. <laughs> We're yep. starting to see it again. <laughs> but no, I mean, it's it's absolutely no wonder that this was like the. There, there was absolutely no separation of church and state. Like this right. was purely theocracy, this and it's probably why things. it lasted as long as it did. And it's hard to believe that it took a weird showerless wizard man from, <laughs> <laughs> like, to to really bring down I, I, the czar. I think the genre he fits into is crust goth. <laughs> <laughs> I know a couple. You of either them. die a wook or you live long enough to become a crust punk. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Happy festival season, hippie friends. (laughs) (laughs) But it wasn't just peasants that were having a lot of trouble. The Russian state was undergoing a growing series of problems as well. This was an age of increasing militarism. Standing armies, navies, and reserve forces were growing much, much bigger as the 19th century turned into the 20th, and arms races were developing as nations sought to outdo each other on land, on the sea, and as our story develops, in the air. The overall tone of international diplomacy was also becoming much more militaristic, though not yet outwardly hostile, but nations were eyeing each other with mistrust and working to counter each other's military growth by increasing spending and creating shifting alliances with other nations. This is the point where they had built the Kampachka, right? Kamchatka? Kamchatka had been built in 1903, I believe, Mm -hmm. if memory serves. So, yeah, sort of... You're talking about the giant handle, plastic handle of vodka, right? (laughs) <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there's only ever been one. They just go into the dumpster and retrieve it and put it back in the Oh, there's been, there been more than one. You guys yeah. never went partying in Fawn Township when you were 17 mm. years old. <laughs> <laughs> now by the, you're showing your ass, Greensburg. <laughs> <laughs> I went to Hempfield. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> <Pinkies> I, up. <laughs> By the time of our story, (laughs) Russia had managed to become part of what was called the Triple Alliance with its biggest trading partner, France, and Great Britain, although the desire with Britain was more out of a desire to, or the alliance with Britain was more out of a desire to counter Germany's growing military might than any particular close ties to the Brits. Now, Russia also had an alliance going with its fellow Slavic nations of Serbia and Romania. However, Russia was also surrounded by previous enemies and potential new ones. To the west lay the twin empires of Germany and Austria-Hungary. Germany was a new nation, finally forged in 1871, but it was highly militarized and experiencing rapid economic growth. Austria-Hungary was a much more ancient empire, the descendant of the old Holy Roman Empire of the Habsburgs, but she had a large population and a large land area and presented a persistent threat to Russian's western territory as both a previous foe in multiple conflicts and as a nation once again arming up for future conflict. Now, the Balkan states, although small, had been unstable for a long time and presented a persistent thorn in the side of Russia, who always had to keep a close eye on events in that region, as they do to this day. To the northwest lay Sweden, an old enemy going back centuries that wasn't making overt threats to Russia, but still had the ability to team up with other nations if it came to it, if it came to, it uh, to make a right pain of itself for the Romanov regime. To the south, along the Black Sea and the Caucasus Mountains, lay the Ottoman Empire, another old and persistent foe, who had been defeated in previous wars but just barely, and represented the means to cause the Muslim populations of many of the border territories to rise in revolt to support incursions into Russian territory. In the southeast was China, on the decline with its hands full of the other European colonial powers, but still a heavily uh, populated nation that shared a weakly defended border. And to the east was Russia's most recent foe, the Japanese, who had handed Russia a truly thorough ass-kicking in the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, 
weakening Russia's strategic position in the Pacific and killing hundreds of thousands of Russian soldiers and putting a massive dent in her naval inventory while doing so. Go back and listen to our series on the travails of the Russian 2nd Pacific Squadron to hear how some of that went. Japan was technically a friend of a friend, being an ally of Britain, but like all the European colonial powers, and America for that matter, Japan was always happy to work to check Russian expansionism. Not that expansionism was really on the docket for the Russians at this time. In addition to threats on every front and recent military defeat, Russia faced economic decline. Government spending had skyrocketed, and taxes had to be increased on a population already struggling to pay them. Russia was also undergoing what we would call stagflation, inflation during a period of no economic growth or economic retraction, with prices constantly rising for food and fuel, while factory owners cut workers' wages to compensate and raise the rents on tenement housing, which it so happened they also owned. Thank God that never happened again. Yeah. (laughs) Now, there was little to no investment by foreign companies happening in Russia either, so they were on their own to try and solve this problem. This all came to a head in January of 1905, when a revolution of workers broke out following bread riots in the streets of multiple Russian cities. Now, mass strikes, protests, and military mutinies were met with cavalry sabers, bayonets, and the new technology of the machine gun. And following violence that killed over 15,000 people, the Tsar instituted a series of almost entirely symbolic reforms that did little to solve any of the immediate problems. Now, the revolution... Now, 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 here's the thing. We, we, we live in a world right now where... People worry about a whole lot of things, and, and we're not we're not in the greatest situation in this country right now. But you just said fucking bread riots. Yeah, well, we're not rioting over bread. No, yes, it's, it's the same situation. <laughs> we're no, rioting over a bunch of dumb shit. No, yeah. but we were some, fighting some over shit paper not too long ago. That yeah, I, I was going to say I watched people beat each other's ass in a Walmart parking lot over toilet paper. But that was not. That was, I mean, that, yeah, that, that's stupid. leading up to it's a little different. It wasn't exactly a riot. But, uh, it, yeah, it's yeah, it's, it's still not what Russia experienced in 1905, what Germany experienced after the First World War, like, mass, like hyperinflation. We're talking at some points, uh, the Russians in, in the early 19th century were experiencing 38 to 42% right. annual inflation. If you uh, ever want to see a real, like, cornerstone in international cinema, Sergei Eisenstein's strike about this time mm-hmm. period, which was made in the early days of the Soviet Union, is incredible. Also, uh, Battleship Potemkin yep. is about the 1905 revolution as yeah. well, I believe. Some of the earliest yeah. work of cross-cuts that really revolutionized everything yeah. as a whole. So I after was just pointing out that, uh, like, like I said, that this is real, real depth of... Yeah, this is almost cataclysmic upheaval. Right. Yeah. This is despair. That <laughs> right. It's another reason despair. why I say I'm surprised that it took a dirty wizard man to bring down <laughs> the czars. It's, well, I, it... The, the whole rotten tower was waiting to fall over. They just needed somebody to come in and kick out the last brick. Right. Is, is the way I see it. it was All wa- it took was a sledgehammer-sized penis. <laughs> I was going to say. He was, was just weighed say, down by that big old swinging hammer. I was going to say somebody in, with bad hair and a cheap suit, but that sounds a little too close to home, too. <laughs> Keith Volhoff, ladies and gentlemen. Keith Volhoff, friend of the show. Give him a round of applause, Don't everybody. Don't forget to tip your waitress. So the, re- so the revolutionary rhetoric returned to the back burner after the czarist reforms, but the issues didn't go away, and the threat of another rising was always in the background. However, this all had very little effect on the people of Siberia. Now, Douglas Smith uses the term a collection of middle-of-nowheres to describe the Siberia of the time, and he's right. 
Now, making up 77% of Russia's landmass, but containing only about 15% of the population at the time, Siberia was in some ways to Russia what the West was to America in the mid-1800s, a place for people with little opportunity to find their own little patch and make a new life for themselves. Now, for centuries, Siberia had been the frontier and the place where society's outcasts were often sent, where exiles were shipped well, well before the establishment of the Soviet gulags, and it was often a place where you'd go if you had something to run away from, maybe a debt or some sort of crime. It was also a place where those who were just a little more independent-minded, those who sought solitude or a little more self-determination, would go if they were able. It was a place where those who were likely to be persecuted in more highly populated areas, people of differing faiths or political ideas that could put that at, them at odds with the powers that be, could go to put some distance between themselves and the authorities. Now, the social strata were still in place in Siberia, but the rigid enforcement of it was less likely to take place out in the hinterlands. So you were more likely to have some freedom of movement or to be able to acquire some land and a little wealth, even if you were a peasant. Now, you could also live a life that, due to the sheer distance between you and the centers of power and commerce and the highly localized subsistence farming existence, was fairly insulated from a lot of the socioeconomic uh, upheaval that was taking place in the other parts of Russia at the time. We talk about Siberia as being wide and sparsely populated, but that doesn't mean there weren't populations there. Now, often you could go 100 miles without seeing a village, but sometimes there were areas where there would be a farming village every few miles and a larger market town here or there, and there were Siberian cities. At the time of our story, the city of Kazan, considered to be the gateway to Siberia, had a population of <coughs> almost 350,000 people, which is more than Pittsburgh has today. And Siberia wasn't always the cold, snowy, windy wasteland that it's often portrayed to be. Now, while this is the case through most of the year in northern Siberia, much of which is above the Arctic Circle, in the southern half of Siberia, where Rasputin grew up, the climate is about the same as it is in southern Canada. Well, if, it, if I looked at the map correctly, he, he was almost Kazakhstani by the modern... A uh, couple hundred miles yeah. to the north of where the border sits now. Right, yeah. exactly. And by the way, we, uh, my, my company has a McDonald's in Kazakhstan <laughs> and not in Siberia. Well, well not anymore. Well, uh, not, yeah. anymore. not anymore. <laughs> Take that, Ivan. You brought this up before, but it is important to keep in mind. You said Siberia is 77% of Russian territory? Yes. Russia is 6,000 miles across. Yeah. Siberia is, what, three times the size of the United States? Yes, roughly. Right. And uh, so, yeah, you'd have long, harsh winters, but with a warmer season that was long enough to grow crops and keep large herds of livestock. Siberian summers can actually be brutally hot. And there, were, there was half-decent farmland here. Not the greatest in the world, but enough to grow a lot of the hardier crops to feed the population, as well as pretty great pasture land for cattle, goats, and especially horses. That's where and, Ivan Drago is from. And, well, hey, yeah, the Siberian exactly. Express. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, but he killed Apollo. And James Brown watched. Yeah. <laughs> he saw the whole thing. Said by silently. <laughs> well, I mean, well, it's, it's actually worth noting that the part, a portion of the Siberian population going into the 20th century were still pretty much traveling horse nomads, living <clears throat> much in the way their forebears had for millennia on the grasslands of southern Siberia. Well, actually, what I was going to say is that I've seen pictures in my research. I saw pictures of his hometown. It's actually quite beautiful in the summer. It, mm -hmm. It's it, like it's a place where I'd probably hang out. Yeah, that, that picture we were talking about, it actually does look kind of pretty. I mean, it's, it actually doesn't look half bad. No. 
And and being on the river, I mean, I can almost imagine like a calm and serene location. You go out, throw your rod out, you know, rip I some mean, lips. That's all I need. Yeah, yeah. sore lipping him. Let's go. <laughs> so he was sore lipping a good many things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a place that. So were his lovers. <laughs> <laughs> so. Siberia was a place that fostered a hardiness and a harsh attitude towards life, but it could still be very, and life there could still be very much nasty, brutish, and short, to the point of giving you a near fatalistic outlook, but you could eke out a decent existence there. And it's into this world that Grigory Rasputin inserted himself. But there's much more to the, oh god, that was a poor choice of words. Anyway... (laughs) I, I am so sorry about I that. I was just I was just biting the shit out of my finger. Yeah, there. Sorry. I, I'm waiting. I'm not doing it, Padre. I'm not. As soon as it came out of my mouth, I, I, I felt it, That's and I was just like, nope. Too. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> anyway, there's much do more. We to like, do we need a five or something now? <laughs> there's, there's much more to the story of how Rasputin got into this world and about how his life growing up shaped him, which we'll start to cover after we take a short break. Tired of listening to whiskey tubers talk about whiskeys you'll never see? Want to hear reviews about whiskeys you can actually afford? How about something you can truly find on the shelf? Are you looking for honest, unbiased feedback about the whiskeys in your budget? Then join us on YouTube at Thrifty Whiskey. Here at Thrifty Whiskey, we do blind tastings of whiskeys that are $30 and under. Bourbon. Scotch. Irish. Indian. And even Canadian. So catch us at Thrifty Whiskey. And until then, may the winds of fortune sail you. May you sail a gentle sea. May it always be the other guy who says, this drink's on me. We're back. And before we continue the story, we're handing it over to the Padre, Michael Ornette, for the yes, Estonian I... fact of the episode. Yes, our Estonian fact of the episode is that in Tallinn, when you pull it into port, there are so many estuaries that form right there at that point into the Baltic that there's more fresh water than salt water. Mm-hmm. So... Shipping vessels that pull into the port actually have to change their navigation because they draft lower. Because fresh water causes a boat to sink. Mm-hmm. Salt water causes a boat to rise. That is fascinating, Michael. Thank you. And that has been your Estonia fact of the day. <laughs> I do love our Estonian friends. I wonder Me where too. we I wonder where we are on that. I gotta I gotta we'll check, have to check back on, on that. Yeah, we'll... I do. I mean, we were rocking number nine. Yeah. Yeah, very good. And as we know, the Estonians are learned people. Anyway, Wonderful people. Prokovskoya, in 1869, was a small, out-of-the-way village found on the banks of the meandering river Tura in west-central Siberia, a few hundred miles from the far side of the Ural Mountains, and about 2,000 miles as the crow flies from the center of Russian power in St. Petersburg. Having been a coaching stop on the post roads connecting several Siberian towns, Prokopskoya had been founded in the mid-17th century on the orders of the local bishop and grew up as a place where grain was farmed, cattle and horses were raised, leather was tanned, pike and sturgeon were caught in the river, and as far as Siberian farming villages went, Prokopskoya was fairly well off in comparison to some of the surrounding towns and hamlets, if not necessarily in the grand scheme of things. Now, by the late 1860s, the town had grown to a population of about 1,000, with about 200 log and clapboard homes bleached by the sun, Dairies and stables, several churches, a small schoolhouse, taverns, and lumber mills. Yefim Fyodorovich and his wife, Anna Parshakova, were each descended from family lines that lived in Prokoskoya from almost its inception, that had moved across the Urals into Siberia in search of some sense of independence 
and what little more opportunity heading eastwards offered. Yefim was a jack of many trades, working different seasonal jobs as a farm laborer, a fisherman, a stevedore, and a carter transporting goods and people between the various crossroad towns in the region. That's one of my favorite phrases. Stevedore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Description, descriptions of Yefim vary, described by alternate sources as, quote, a thick, typical Siberian peasant, chunky, unkempt, and stooped. Now, the, the one important word that I'm going to keep bringing up is peasant. Yes. You talked earlier about the gulf in wealth. Yes. And how insular the ruling class was. This is a peasant, born of peasants, who, as this story goes on, is going to do some real fucked up door kicking whenever it comes to the, the halls of those in power. Oh, yeah. But, dear dear listener, please understand, this is truly a peasant born of peasants. Yes. And the, the continuing story will reinforce that point. And, but, Yefim... And- you know, to add to that, that's to add to that. That's kind of like almost living the American dream, coming up from the very bottom and mm-hmm. rising to the top. Yeah, turns out yeah. Gregory yeah. Rasputin lived the American dream better than any American. <laughs> <laughs> he had it all: wealth, power, a giant arm-sized dick, <laughs> and I'm gonna shot in the head. He and was I'm just fine. Saying, well, look. look. <laughs> I'm, I'm He's only mostly dead. Right. <laughs> Got better. And I'm going to play it off by the fact I'm, 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 I'm going to take the Jeff Bezos side here and say, oh boy, he only did that because his parents were sexual deviants. <laughs> oh, we'll, well get that's to that. what I read. Yeah. Well, that's what I heard. <laughs> so I cannot elaborate any further upon that particular Good subject. Point. So Yefim was described as quote a thick, typical Siberian peasant, chunky, unkempt, and stooped. Or a, quote, healthy, hardworking, and sprightly He was a hunchback. Who, despite his lack of formal education, was capable of learned conversations and surprising wisdom, end quote. Now, despite many sources he indicating... He was Quasimodo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, his face rings a bell. Now, despite... Aww. Yeah. Aww. Don't blame me. Blame the burn. That's a burn, Joe. That's coming out in post. Yeah. So, despite... Uh, I'm, I'm surprised I get through as many as I do. <laughs> So, despite many sources indicating his taste for strong vodka, Yefim had managed to build himself a fairly decent life, finding a plot of land of about 30 acres, a dozen cattle, and about 20 horses, not rich by any means, but prosperous by Siberian peasant standards. Now, having measured... Did he sell one? Don't. 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 It, it, don't. You get one per episode. Do you want to don't. save it? No. Yeah, you I'm get saving your it. I'm don't. saving it. I'm saving it. I'm saving it. Dude, this is put so the, weird. The pen You're down. the angel the... on the shoulder, Chris, and I'm the devil. Put it's the... not usually no, the No, it's down. because you know down. the end game. Yeah, I know the end game. <laughs> right. Put the pen down. So do I. I ain't no fucking angel in this <laughs> end game. Just wait until the ass beating we uncork in episode five. So... Having married Anna... You should come in here with a goddamn horse costume on for the fifth episode. I'm making a note of that. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I say nay. <laughs> Keith Ballhop, friend of the show here present, ladies and gentlemen. So having married Anna at the age of 20 in 1862, Yefim and his wife had several children in the first seven years of their marriage. Three girls and one boy, none of whom lived more than a few months, reflecting the often staggering infant mortality rate at the time. The first child to survive was born on the 9th of January, 1869, the seventh anniversary of their wedding, on the feast day of St. Gregory of Nyssa. Because of the day, the baby who would be their first to survive beyond infancy was christened Gregory Efimovich. Six more babies would follow, of whom only one, their last, 
a daughter named Theodosia, would survive beyond childhood. It's said that on the night Grigori was born, as Anna was deep in her labor, a bright comet streaked across the cold Siberian night sky, a clear omen that the baby was to be a great man of destiny. Now, of course, there's no astronomical records to, uh, of any comets visible to that part of the world, but such omens were often reported. Other omens being discussed of dogs being born with six legs, snakes falling from the sky like rain, or babies being born with iron teeth, most of which, not surprisingly for Siberian, Siberian peasants, portended pestilence or times of starvation. Now, Grigori's childhood and youth are a swirling black hole of information, very little of which can, we can be certain of. Later stories in tabloid newspapers would state that shocking information had come forward about the carnal conduct of little Grigori's parents, that Yefim had insisted on having sex with his wife during her pregnancies, that once, when Anna resisted, he lost his mind, screaming, Push it out! Hurry up and push it out! Leading to Grigori's childhood nickname in the village of Pushed Out Grishka. It's That's better than how's it feel. But <laughs> <laughs> it's why he had a dent in his forehead. Because <laughs> <laughs> so, his father, if his father should have been in the Museum of Erotica too. <laughs> <laughs> so it's even said that when Anna was heavily swollen with child before Grigori's birth, that Yefim insisted on copulating with her from behind. So <gasps> that's why she saw the comet. <laughs> <laughs> He was that damn good. You just said swirling black hole before, and I tried so hard. It's just, this whole thing is just good. Oh, man, we're in it. Some reports even state that Anna... One of them was chasing tail. The best thing is, wasn't it a goddamn handyman? So this myth came from a handyman who insisted he saw Interviewed by a Russian tabloid in 1911. What the fuck was this guy doing? Well, no, Jerking off, fixing the pipes. Well, no, this is a separate one. I've seen this movie. a pizza. But this handyman in insisted that he had witnessed Yefim having anal sex with Anna. Ah, I took the dirt right, huh? Well, she wasn't seeing a comet. She was seeing stars. <laughs> and, and so uh, this was a statement that was shocking to the sensibilities of the time, even if they are likely made up so as to suggest sexual perversion as something of a family trait. Now, we do know for certain that Grigori was never formally educated and came from a household where no one else had been either. As a matter of fact, the entire... Well, that's because they were too busy doing butt stuff. Well, yeah. <laughs> as a matter of... As a no, ma- he's, he's right. Yeah. yeah. I, I, I kind of can't argue with it. So as a matter of fact, the entire family was illiterate, as was about 96% of the Siberian population at the time, and Grigori wouldn't learn to read until his 30s. Now, the local schoolhouse didn't have the room, and it's likely that Yefim didn't have the money, so Grigori followed the path of a lot of young Siberian boys and went to work with his father pretty much as soon as he was able. Uh, around the age of seven or eight, he learned to tend crops, tend animals, learned how to fish the river. He went to church with his family on Sundays. Nothing in Grigori's early life suggested that he was going to be anything other than another typical Siberian peasant boy who lived the sort of life cycle his forebears had for generations. Now, it became pretty clear early on that young Grigori had some interesting and odd traits that made him stand out even amongst a community full of people with interesting personality features. He was terribly afraid of shadows. Because he was convinced that they contained the vengeful spirits of the dead, waiting to leap out and attack him. I think half of our Congress thinks the same thing, so I don't think that's <laughs> strange. And those are the ones that aren't like just patently insane or. <laughs> well, it was yeah, like, 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 old like, like, like yeah. as 
ex CrossFit trainers. Oh, yeah. Well, they would definitely get him a guest spot on Coast to Coast. That's fair. <laughs> so, so, so tell me, Gregory, these ghost shadows, do they have a smell? Hey, it turns out, George, they do. Yeah, don't be don't be dogging out my buddy George. I'm Nori. not dogging George Nori. I love George Nori. So, as a kid, Gregory also preached against theft because he claimed he could see if someone had been a thief and could even see what it was exactly that they had stolen. And as such, claimed that he was unusual because he himself had never taken a thing, which points to the fact that petty theft was for some reason rampant in rural Siberia, but also Grigori's future would show that this would turn out to be uh, an outright lie. Now, I, although how creepy is that, having a little kid just running around yelling, You stole the vodka! I can see it! I never steal! And then running away from the... Like crying from the shadow of a passing horse. I mean, it is exactly what happened in Salem. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is how the Salem witch trial right. started. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, so, little Gregory was also a bedwetter and was known for having a constantly runny, snotty nose beyond even what you tend to see with little kids normally. So, wait a minute. We know absolutely fucking nothing about this guy, but we know he pissed a bet. Uh, there are many, many reports. I, I, You're I, not yeah. going to forget that one. Yeah. People don't forget. <laughs> I mean,. People always remember the little Damn kid. It. People Damn it. remember the little kid my running life. around always who always smells like pee. So Yes, this is a stinky thing. Yeah. Right? And yeah, he was known for having a constantly snotty nose beyond even what you see with kids normally, and he had a habit of walking around constantly muttering to himself and moving with weird herky jerky motions, as well as constantly fidgeting with everything he could touch. By the age of 12, his behaviors, the snot, the smell of pee, and his holier-than-thou attitude about theft, had made little pushed-out Grishka an outcast in a village that was essentially made up of outcasts. You mean the kids didn't love the little piss-soaked stool pigeon snot demon? You, you, well, they elected a president. No, they didn't. And, and that little boy but, but, grew but, up to be Rush Limbaugh. I was, I was going to say, they A <laughs> hundred years later? You yeah, he probably it. fucking would have. Yeah. Now, however, uh, around the age of 12 or actually even earlier than that, Grigori's behaviors began to take a turn for the supernatural when he was about eight years old. While playing with his cousin, who was his only real friend in the village, both boys fell into the river and caught pneumonia, with only Grigori surviving. Having lost the only person who'd hang out with him, Grigori soon turned to horses for companionship. Pretty soon. They accepted him as their own. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they, they looked at him once, I'm I'll raise the Sorry, boy. I'm, watching I'm trying Padre. to get out in front of Padre. Yeah. I got this. Okay. I'm watching Padre just squirm right now. This is so fun. So, pretty soon, Grigori claimed he was able to commune with horses on a telepathic level. Now, around the age of 12, another incident began to point to Rasputin having special abilities. Bedridden with a high fever, Grigori was resting one night while his father had friends over to the house for vodka and the latest gossip. Their conversation turned to the matter of the poorest man in town having his one and only horse stolen from him. And the men looked up with a start when they saw the ill Grigori, wrapped in a blanket, standing in the doorway. He looked at all of their faces, then raised a finger and pointed at one of the men in the room, stating, He did it. He stole the horse. Yefim apologized to his friend, stating that the boy was feverish and not in his right mind and was speaking nonsense. However, a couple of the men had a hunch that the boy might be onto something and followed the indicated suspect home and lo and behold, found him trying to move the stolen horse. The man was beaten within an inch of his life, as was the Siberian custom of the time. And this was enough for the village to finally look past the snot and pee and finally give Rasputin a little bit of respect. However, during Grigori's teen years, as he got older, there was something of a shift in his behavior. 
He started to acquire and soon surpass his father's taste for strong drink. And with his new love of booze came new habits of fighting and petty theft, contrary to his old stance on thievery. He basically becomes John Belushi from fucking Animal House. Yeah. He had a reputation, earned or not, for stealing horses, vodka, hay, and firewood, anything that could really be picked up and carried away. He started smoking a pipe by the time he was 13. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, yeah, Gregory at 13 sounds exactly like Chris at 23. That's, yeah. Well, that's, that's, well like, here's the thing. Like, I think I had my first cigarette at 13. Yeah. But like, there's a difference between like trying a cigarette and not liking it, like it happened with me, and just sitting there watching a 13-year-old kid just... Just puffing on a pipe all day. Well, just fisting a bottle of vodka. <clears throat> that is true. It's like, a, that boy grew up to be Babe Ruth. <laughs> <laughs> so Grigori was even arrested and jailed for several days when he was 15 for mouthing off to a visiting government official. He started to show signs of lecherous behavior towards local women and gambled away what little money he had. Now, how much of this bad behavior was due to teenage angst and how much was due to his love of the kind of vodka you can melt a wagon wheel in, I don't know. The... A propaganda leaflet published in St. Petersburg after his death claimed that, quote, In his youth he was uncommonly hapless. With a foul mouth, inarticulate speech, driveling, dirty as can be, a thief, and a blasphemer. He was the fright of his native village, a poor and forsaken place. Its inhabitants had a particularly bad reputation even by Siberia's standards. Do-nothings, crooks, horse thieves, and his family were just like all the rest. And he would be the same way as he grew up. So he sounds like every 13-year-old I've ever met. It's just, yeah. It's, there is yeah, enough out of I'm going to steal my dad's beer and cigarettes and say bad things because I think it's edgy. Very yeah. little has changed. Yeah. <laughs> also, you guys may so, notice this, that I've been calling him Grigori and not Rasputin up to this point. Now, yeah. yeah, now that's because there's an awful lot of competing theories as to where the name Rasputin actually comes from when he starts being referred to as Rasputin or if the family had used the name in the past. Now, the way of the Russian peasantry was that he'd be known around town simply as Grigory Yefimovich, Grigory, son of Yefim. And if he went somewhere else, he'd be Grigory Yefimovich Prokovskoyova, Grigory, son of Yefim from Prokovskoya. Now, there's some debate on where the name Rasputin even came from or if it was even an established family name at all. Now, the best indicator of this is an entrance as an entry in a parish record from 1650, just after the family had moved to Prokovskoya, for Grigory's eight times uh, great-grandfather, Nason Izosimovich, who had a nickname or title or note of some kind next to his name that said Rosputa, a derivation of the old medieval Russian word for crossroads. Now, another theory has... At the root of the name coming from the kind of the untranslatable Russian word Rashputitsa, referring to the wet, muddy spring season when Russia's roads become unusable. However, the most popular theory, all the, the one, however, most likely to be correct, states that the name was assigned to him as he came into adulthood as a result of his behaviors. The name was derived from the term Rasput, Rasputnichatnik, which translates to one who behaves with wanton debauchery or one who has a lack of control when it comes to vice. So essentially, Grigory Rasputin basically just means hammered Greg. <laughs> I went to high school with that guy. Yeah. <laughs> I thought you went to college with him. I mean, that's a that's a hammered Greg is totally a like a, a, a Greek frat name. I don't think I knew a single yeah. Greg in college. I, Greg's a dying name. Uh, well, I, I was going to go. I have an article I can share about this. There I are fewer <laughs> Gregs now than there's ever been. 
I'm gonna I, I'm gonna kind of go back to the first two translations. Maybe it was because the rumor was they knew his mom took the dirt road. Huh? You make a good point. The, the, the muddy road. The one the thing muddy that, road. The one thing that gets me about the during the wet season that there during is the wet season. <laughs> that there is a a Russian word that is untranslatable because it is so specific towards the season whenever you cannot move via road because everything is so muddy. During the you know d- during the springtime, yeah. which is whenever they decided to launch a full scale armed invasion of their neighbor, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So by the time you know was, that thing yeah. that's still going on. <laughs> mm-hmm. So by the time he was seventeen, Rasputin's weird behavior, petty criminality, and antisocial acts reached a point where someone felt it was a good idea to send him away for a while to try and shape up. The family had gone on pilgrimages before, but in the summer of eighteen eighty six. Gory went on his first one alone to the uh, Znameski Monastery at Tobolsk, about 120 miles upriver. Now, personally, I think he went to avoid some kind of criminal charge, either running until the heat died down or going as a sort of plea bargain to avoid a harsher punishment. Either way, he went to celebrate the Feast of the Assumption. While there, he met a plump blonde with dark eyes three years his senior named Praskovia Dubrovina. That's my birthday. Who at the age of... <laughs> who at the uh, Feast of the Assumption? Yeah. The Orthodox Feast of the Assumption? No, that one? would be like two yeah. weeks later, or yeah. two weeks earlier. Who, at the age of 20, was already a spinster by Siberian peasant standards. Now, I don't know what she saw in him, but Siberia in the late 19th century was not a place for single women, and I despite... I guess. Well... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, we we probably ballpark it. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> See, but, I got this thing. Yeah. <laughs> Funk. <laughs> he just walks in with the nicest belt she's ever seen. It's and just bouncing off. The, just, oh. Just, <laughs> what, what's that bouncing off the top of his shoes? Oh. So. That's why he was such a good farmer. Like, yeah. He just plowed every field he walked through. He didn't even mean to. <laughs> so, he could have been despite, a fisherman. Yeah, despite everything about him. She, uh, she, after a short courtship, she married Rasputin at the monastery and returned with him to Prokofskoya, moving in with his parents, as was the custom. Imagine that. You, you send him away on... As was the custom. Yeah. Well, you send, this, you send him away on privilege, on pilgrimage for being a shithead, and he just comes back with a wife. Yeah, he's just married and back. Like, and then what's continues for to be a shithead. Yeah. What? Comes back with his wife, who is a, his wife is a visible limp. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Something please, tells me. Please sit down. Uh, I'd, I'd rather not. <laughs> something, tells me, uh, something tells me she was a she was a sturdy woman. Mm. So despite his womanizing, drinking, and log absences, she would remain devoted to him for the rest of his life, always keeping their home in Prokopskoya, waiting for his return, and tolerating all of his worst behavior. Now Rasputin went back to work in the family business, whatever that happened to be at the moment, and they set about doing the normal things of having and then losing a bunch of children. The first, Mikhail, was born in September of 1889 and died of scarlet fever before his fifth birthday. Twins followed in the May of 1894, Georgi and Anna, but both succumbed to an epidemic of whooping cough just before their second birthday. Dmitri, born in October of 1895, was the first to survive into adulthood, as would his sisters Matriona, born in March of 1898, and Vavara, born in November of 1900. The seventh and last, a girl named uh, Praskovia, born in October of 1903, survived less than three months. Now, as Rasputin moved into his 20s and set about creating a family of his own, he seemed to be set to live the life that unfolded as it did for millions of other Siberian peasant farmers and workers, even if he was known to be a bit of a local character. However, just because he had a wife and was making babies didn't mean that Rasputin was going to settle down in terms of his bad behavior, trying his best to be this, at the same time a godly man, but also the town pain in the ass. Kind of like that frat boy we all know who would 
like go on and on about how much he loved Jesus and like he'd have like the fish hook in his cap and stuff like that. But as soon as the party started, he was just an unholy terror. I have a fish hook in my cap. Yes, yeah, his name was like, Drunk Greg. This is horrible. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, oh no, was I Drunk Greg? <laughs> I think his mom referred to his dad as the town pain in the ass too. <laughs> oh, Keith, oh, Keith I see you nice. speak our language. I like that. I like that. Now I will say, this uh, hairy bastard spends a decade getting shit hammered on an ox cart and telling people to go fuck themselves. Yeah, it's, it's great. kind of amazing. You know? Yeah, he, yeah, he developed a reputation for getting. We already hammered. talked about him living the American dream. Yeah, yeah right? and joyriding on a horse cart and riding around town to shout obscenities at all the decent folk and starting fights just for the hell of it. A favorite tactic was apparently to ride up on his cart and just hit somebody with his horse whip for the fuck of it, just to start something. He made every night Krampus knocked. Yeah, yeah. If you were <laughs> Tammany Hall. Well, I don't want to. I don't want to bring us out of the comedy, but I will say this. I mean. The guy lost how many children? Uh, four out of seven There's over the course of his point. life. But he was the only surviving one of seven. So this is not uncommon. It's like I understand that it's nine. not. I understand that it's not uncommon. But it's a fuck. I. But I, societally, it has to be yeah. let, like you are expecting this to not work. You know, you're going into it with what is it a twenty percent chance? I, I, I don't know. Maybe I can't get my head around that part. Yeah, I, just, I, right, I think that has to, that has to be a societal thing. It has to be. I, I well, can, it has to be, but that doesn't discount the fact that he probably was dealing with some trauma over that. I mean, yeah, I mean like trauma from things before. Be, yeah. like, he had yeah. an abusive drunk father. Lost his, I, I lost his honestly, cousin after falling in the river. Sorry, I can honestly ahead. speak to that personally. Uh, being a, an adoptive father who me and my wife adopted because we had to if we wanted to have children. Mm-hmm. It is rough. I mean, we never saw any of our children pass away or anything like that. But, I mean, it is a heart-wrenching, challenging life yeah. when you're trying to have kids and you just can't for whatever reason. And, and, right. I, and, and both things can be true at the same time. This can be a catastrophically traumatic event for him each time he loses a child. But you can also have... A very very different mindset about childbirth and and child mortality, and that's that's what I'm thinking. At the same here. time, yeah. If anything, it just sounds like he's a bad drunk. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, he really right. is. You know, and, I and, think that that's okay. what it boils down to. Yeah, and as a result, fewer and fewer people would hire him for jobs. And soon, whenever anything in town went missing or there was any kind of damage or destruction, he the became horse a, did it. He became the town scapegoat. <laughs> the horse's and, shadow did it. Yeah. <laughs> The ghosts within the horse's shadow. Yeah, come on, Padre. This is the shadows. It's ridiculous. It's the ghosts that live in the shadows. (laughs) Sorry, trying to keep up. Now, if a shadow ghost could destroy a fence, how many many linear feet of fence could it destroy in a minute? That's a very good question, George. (laughs) So, it was said that Rasputin's evil nature was so strong that he had a small horn growing out of the middle of his forehead. This story's so goddamn good. So he's a dick face. That's, <laughs> and the that's reason, from his dad. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was just a cyst from yeah. trauma. But the reason, and, and the reason he kept his hair long and unkempt was to hide it. Now, the real story behind this happened during this period, and it's actually far more it's embarrassing. Amazing. It's because it made him look yeah. sweet. Now, one night... One night, one of Rasputin's neighbors, a farmer named Kartovstiev, emerged from his house to find a hammered Rasputin stealing his fence piece by piece, <laughs> hacking, it, hacking it up with an axe. <laughs> when Kartovstiev confronted... His fence is involved! It is community fence! Yeah. 
just moving it one foot over it. It's like, use my fence now. I've met this guy. I've hung out with this guy. I like this guy. <laughs> Here's the thing. I don't know let's what get, all the fuss is about. Let's, let's get hammered and steal a fucking fence. We always have, we always, we always have these moments where every, most of the subjects we cover, I have a moment where I kind of like the person we're talking about. And I've had a couple of these with Greg so far. He's in a village of several hundred people. Like, you're going to know. Yeah. So, when Hey, Greg, where'd you get that fence? (laughs) So, when he's like, why don't you fuck off? (laughs) You asked too many questions. He's just out of his mind stealing copper. He lives in in Russian Florida. (laughs) No, he wouldn't, though, because he'd just fuck her. Yeah. All the cattle, all the catalytic converters just disappeared overnight. <laughs> what's a catalytic converter on a horse? Like, is it just his shoes? Like I don't know. Like, I don't know, Mike. What's a catalytic converter on a horse? Probably his balls. Probably his balls. Probably balls. <laughs> Gotta be balls. I'm gonna balls. I am. I'm allowed. I am. I am amazed by the level of restraint. You are excellent. I am so Michael. I'm his so sponsor. I'm playing. I'm playing. I'm playing the long game. I'm playing the long I am game. His sponsor this one, Michael. I just want to let you know we all love you very much. I know. I'm court- I, I know. I'm absolutely courting disaster here. Anyway, so when Kartovskiev <laughs> came out of his house and confronted the drunk idiot, Rasputin menaced him with the axe. So Kartovskiev just picked up one of the hacked apart fence stakes and just bashed Rasputin right in the forehead with it, leaving him with a permanent bump for the rest of his life. So by the time he was. I'm still going to call him Dickface the rest of the year. Oh, yeah. That had to hurt so impossibly bad. <laughs> I've been hit in the face with a lot of stuff, and nothing ever left a permanent mark. Yeah. I do have like a couple, well, we call them scars. <laughs> like, like little tiny cuts, but like a full-on, fe- like a rough-cut fence post, and he's blasting them with it. Yep, right in the One, forehead. it had to sound funny. Because <laughs> like, have you ever seen guessing, somebody get hit in the head yeah. with something? It's always loud. Oh, yeah. and it's I'm always guessing like, it's that. Thunk! I'm thinking it's that, that, that watermelon when you... Pluck a watermelon like that, thump, thump, yeah. thump, amplified thump, by yeah, yeah. forty times. Yeah, exactly. Because I mean, that's what happens when you get hit in the head. It sounds like that, regardless of what the other guy hits you right. with. So unless it's a, an empty bottle of Michelob, <laughs> which I got to tell you from experience is incredibly loud. Yeah, really. And you remember the old volcano, like the lava yeah, lamp yeah, looking ones? Yeah. yeah, and they don't break the first time. At least the first time. It's not like the movies. It's not hilarious. <laughs> You know, as we're sitting here telling the backstory of all our traumatic brain injuries, I'm suddenly realizing why we all came together to make this podcast. <laughs> so, lots and lots of hits to the head. So by the time he was 28 in 1897... Just it looked, one good one here. Yeah. <laughs> it looked, yeah. But it's a doozy. Yeah. It, it looked like Rasputin was starting to hit rock bottom at the beginning of a Siberian midlife crisis at 28. Now his fighting, drinking, petty crime, and sexual indiscretions were at an all-time high, and he was beginning to run out of anyone in the village to stand up for him, even his own father. The breaking point came when Rasputin and two other men were accused of the theft of several horses and hauled before the Justice of the Peace, or whatever the Siberian equivalent is. The two other men were found guilty and were soundly beaten and then permanently exiled from Prokofskoya under pain of death. But the evidence against Rasputin was far more circumstantial and less clear. And so a shorter, temporary exile was suggested. There's Rest- something truly amazing about being exiled from Siberia. I was just going to say well, the I, same I assume thing. you're just exiled from Prokofskoya <laughs> to another part right, of Siberia. To a different part. Why don't you just send you somewhere like, really nice? Yeah. Like, now you're like in the That's French like, Riviera. Like, yeah. It's like oh, saying is- hell doesn't even want you. you know? <laughs> so Rasputin fired back with the idea of taking a long pilgrimage over 300 miles away to the monastery of St. Nicholas in Verkoturia 
to seek absolution and atone for his sins. Now, with the encouragement of the local church authorities, the court agreed, happy to get, get at least a few months' respite from this asshole, and Rasputin left behind his child and pregnant wife and set off on his journey. However, so, this... So, wait a minute. We're, we're exiling you to the city, and we're going to put you in with a bunch of monks and hope that you don't change their minds. Basically, <laughs> you know, there's there's strength in numbers. We, yeah. We'll see what happens in monasteries. Yes, yeah. yeah, what gonna, could go wrong? Mon- monasteries are not famous for changing their minds about stuff. Is he going to come back into the folder? Is he patient zero? <laughs> yeah. Like, and but this wasn't just him swanning off on a long vacation, though. It seemed like Rasputin became very, very serious about atonement for the shit he'd done, and the way he went about undertaking this pilgrimage was focused on being shriven of his offenses. Might have been getting hit in the fucking forehead. Knock something loose, yeah. <laughs> the 300-mile journey was already a hard one with a lack of any decent roads and in many places none at all and across rough terrain. Rasputin undertook most of the journey stripped to the waist, exposing his body to the blistering sun, the weather, the insects, and scratching branches and thorns. He fasted heavily, taking in very little food and water, and spent most of his time in meditative prayer, whether on the move or at rest, repeating endlessly, Lord Jesus Christ, have mercy upon me, a sinner. Often, if I had to do that, I'd be saying Jesus Christ the whole time, too. Yeah. <laughs> I get it. Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Often when he stopped, he stood in insect-filled swamps or ice-cold pools to utter his prayers, depriving himself of any good comfort or rest. He begged for all his food. How very German of him. Yeah. <laughs> he begged for his food, lacked sleep, let his clothes fall to tatters, and risked attack by armed bandits who often preyed on hapless travelers. He claimed, and this is unsubstantiated for the record, to have used knotted cords to mortify his flesh as he walked. Oh, flagella. Yeah. Finally, after nearly three months of travel, Rasputin arrived at the monastery of St. Nicholas. His experience had sobered him, centered his mind, and focused him in, on not only his new identity as an itinerant religious wanderer, but also on the bald ambition that still lurked in the back of his brain to be something bigger than he was, to escape his small life in Prokofskoya and to prove to everyone around him that he was more than just a drunk loser. And the next chapter of Rasputin's life would cement him as a mystic and open the doors to the halls of power beyond even what anything he could have imagined. But we'll explore that in part two of our series on Grigory Rasputin. Everybody knows that guy. That guy that's just... <laughs> oh, man. You know, I know it's like two o'clock... I mean, last call's already gone on, man. Yeah. I gotta get something to do something with my life. I gotta quit digging ditches, man. I'm not a fucking loser. Yeah. I gotta, I Am gotta, I a loser, man? He did move back in with his parents. Yeah. <laughs> Which now is, is very en vogue. Yeah. He's out of economic necessity most of the time. Yeah. But uh, so yeah, so that's part one of Rasputin. I like it. Oh, good. <laughs> well, glad. that's all it takes. There's yeah. one. That's, yeah, we're good. Yeah. We got one fan. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, and you know what? That's all you need. Yeah. Exactly. And so, uh, yeah, the weird and wild shit is just getting started. I mean, the, the, yeah, this is just the setting the scene and, and going through the, the weird, stinky roots of the man. I, so far, he sounds like Mr. Peaked in high school and yeah. trying to find another way. Yeah. It was 1869 that he was born, right? Yes. Nice. nice. <laughs> yeah, you guys didn't hit it with the nice. And when I said it multiple times, and I was yeah, but you were rolling. Like, yeah, you, you were, were going. Well, yeah. What, what I kind of picked up on, and we I don't know. We were waiting for dick jokes. What I kind of picked up on was that he was born on January 9th, 1869, 
And I had mentioned before that he'd fit in in Woodstock that took place in 1969. <laughs> he was just, he was just a, a, a titch too early. But, but well, well, see, here's the whole thing. The daguerreotype had already come out. Matthew Brady was already in there, right? So if Rasputin's mom was having butt sex... <laughs> there might be pictures. Can we clip there, that? There could be Jamie, pictures. Can you pull it up for me? There, there are pictures. There could be porn. I did see pictures there, of we, his mom, and she is, in fact, a husky woman. Yeah. They're, 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 I'm they're just saying. That, mom, I'm just his, saying uh, we could rule 34 this stuff. I believe. I believe the term is a handsome woman. A handsome yes, woman. Yes. <laughs> so um, yeah. Any anything else for the good of the order before we wrap up today, gents? There's going to be a lot. Yeah. Coming. Like there will also be. Like a denouement, probably <laughs> episode. Coming. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think it's going to be about five episodes of story plus a roundup is what we're, I think, planning on right now. That may expand. Uh, yeah, I, like like I said, dear this, listener, this, we're, we're, we're planning on five, but this episode alone yeah. is pushing two for, hours. For, for the coming while, this is going to be a Rasputin podcast. <laughs> right. Yeah. This um, is essentially like yeah. season two? Yeah. Well, I guess like three because we did yeah, it. Well, although, uh, we, don't, we don't operate in yeah. seasons. We're, we're, we're going to have some extra rations to come to kind of help break up the... the the subject matter just right. to keep some other stuff some other stories kind of flowing in i got in some ideas if i can ever get them recorded mm-hmm. well yeah so. but uh yeah so we'll we'll uh we'll have that coming your way i hope you're looking forward to the rest of the rasputin story as much as we are it's such a good story yes he, cool. he's one of the most fascinating people of of the last 150 years and you may not realize it but he's probably affected your life in some way correct absolutely he's affected all of our lives sitting here directly yeah right yeah. And I mean, just in pop culture alone, and the, th- the things that we know, the things that we can confirm that are coming, coming up in this story, make the things that might not have happened seem incredibly plausible. Yeah. And also, think about it. Who else would Boney M have sung about if not for this man? <laughs> <laughs> That's you know. how it has affected our lives. Yeah. Just, just strictly there. That well, is true. Honestly, my daughter would not have the name she has. That is true. No, not. you're exactly right. Yeah. yeah. Um, if, if not I, I dated a, a girl for a long time who was adopted and believed, and maybe to this day, that she is still a, like Anastasia. Like, like She's a princess. <laughs> she like, looked forever to find this. Like, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, this is the case. So I mean, hopefully she does. Then I'll be even more pissed off if that didn't work. Yeah, <laughs> but it is. But it, that would be my fucking luck. Uh, well, it's a little older than me. But so she's I don't descended. Think that timeline. We're, oh, so, descended. 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 Oh, not <laughs> descendant of royalty. But like she saw it on stage, she was like, "Holy not shit!" Sitting there was sitting. I mean, I'm not judging your chasing women. I do outkick my comrades. Uh, Kyle, not, she's not yeah, but at 120, she's not sitting there with a cigarette in, there, in a shaking hand and a thousand <laughs> yards there, going, "I was there when the Romanovs fell." <laughs> like, and then he said he was king of the world. I was looking at the, at the fucking what's the what's the stupid thing? What's the stupid shit they have uh, for the queen? Uh, the the planet who's Jubilee. clearly dead. Like, obviously dead. Like, people so were you're, waving. you're the robot people, conspiracy guy? People were waving to a hologram of the queen. They're like, oh, she ain't coming. Yeah. That bitch is dead. <laughs> like, they're not even trying to weaken at Bernie's yeah, and shit. They still just put gotta, a hologram out. Weaken we at still, Hey, as, as, somebody, as somebody that comes from British stock, I just got to say, we got to beat the freaking French. I mean, we got to beat Louis the Fourteenth. That is true. But I, I, I am it, watching. Hey, look, I, I'm German Italian. I'm rooting for the continents. Fourteen months ago, 
Hey, fuck him, Island. 14 months to go to beat yeah. Louie. Well, yeah. well, she lost that one about yeah, two months ago. We gotta beat the Sun King. She's dead. Anyway, so I'm watching, like, they have everybody posted up, and they're all wearing like the hilarious amount of medals that come with royalty. Mm-hmm. I swear to God, they're just inventing new ones. Oh, yeah. Every time I see, no, no, people. Like, every time oh. I see the, the, the royalty, there's like a new, weirder looking one with bigger ears. And like, I, I swear well, to God, they're just inventing new ones at this point. Like it's like, don't insult my intelligence. I mean, like, Prince Charles really is looking like the old photos of Bat Boy from the Weekly World. That's press. true. Like, that that just, is true. They just keep shit. Like it, they're just pulling one of those like weird looking old guys from like Game of Thrones, Lord of the Rings, and shit. Just like plug them <laughs> into the background, putting a new weirder hat on them. But I don't understand why you're not rooting for her if you if, if you claim German blood anyway. Because oh, isn't her actual name isn't her actual name like Gotha Saxe Coburn uh, or something? So Saxe Coburn Gotha. Yeah, yeah, it was that goes yeah. back quite a ways. Yeah. So uh, before we wrap up, a couple quick things. Uh, first off, congratulations to Aaron Wallach, friend of the show, for winning our contest to see who could come the closest to guessing the time in Justinian Part One, where Vinny bit me right on the man vegetables. How how close were we? Uh, Aaron got within a uh, within two point six seconds of the official timestamp. Wow! Whoa! Wow! That that was like, intense. So close that I almost find it unsettling. <laughs> Like, want, no offense, uh, uh, no offense Aaron. Him, I don't know on play, and I know when it happens. Aaron, I don't know so that I could get that close. The thing about our friend Aaron, uh, so Aaron's a friend of mine from my, my wargaming group, um, latecomer to the show, has within the last three months binged our entire collection. Okay. Of episodes. Latecomer to the show, but is now one of our most devoted fans. I mean, man, I, well, so, part of the reason why this took so well, long. We started it, listening yeah. last week, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know, because I, I finally got the Rona. I finally yeah. got bit by the bug. I uh, there are only two, no, there are three people left at work that haven't had it yet. So now I got a death pool going. Nice. Yeah, and uh, nice. whoever gets it last, or the last man standing, gets a trophy that uh, we are cool. having. I like yeah. It. Yeah. But it's last man standing. Uh, my owner is on his way to Florida right now for a conference. Yeah, he's he's uh, out. Ronaville. <laughs> he's, he's out. <laughs> the United States of Rona. I made it to Florida and back in December, and I have not yet caught the thing. So yeah. But um, <laughs> yeah, that, I'll have it tomorrow. That you know of. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So anyway, Aaron's been so in contact with me. In the super spreader. Huh? Yeah. But uh, during my COVID week, I watched five seasons of Justified in four and a half days. I just want a mandatory vacation at this point. <laughs> People I, keep saying that, and like, I know, go, I go out and start no, getting coughed good. on by strangers. I, like, I know it's that a I, fucked up thing to say, but like, I get it. I know that and my general like, manager I, listens to this, so no, I am never <laughs> going to do a mandatory vacation. I will never get the Rona, John. <laughs> so anyway, so yeah, so Aaron's been in contact with me. He's going to pick out his favorite research text that we've used, and we'll get it to him to add to his own library. Congratulations, hey, pick, Aaron. Pick a general history of pirates, because it's the most expensive and you use it the most. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, get up. Make also, it pay uh, out. I can't remember the name of the book, but I am going to point out that if you go back some episodes... Rob points out his most favorite text. Oh shit! You're right. Oh, the Necronomicon. <laughs> I'm going to say that's the Great Mortality. Look for yeah. Look for the Great Mortality. And that's right. I, yeah. I, I just pulled nudge, up nudge, nudge, uh, wink, wink. I just pulled up our page. I'm looking through the, through the episodes list to help me find it. But no, you're exactly right. Pick that one. Yeah. So um, or, my, or my, pick Twilight of the Romanovs now. Really make this a bitch. My favorite. <laughs> My favorite research book. Rob's just frowning. I think we all have enough copies of that going around here. I have it on digital. The one thing I learned more than anything else from that text is that I hate digital copies of books. It was just cheap. Yeah. I use too many highlighters and written notes and post-its. I love love post-its. Here's how bad this was for me, the the faith power and the twilight. So I had... uh, 
gotten that book from the Butler Library. That's where I need, or where I live. Um, so I got that book from the Butler Library. And believe it or not, my dog actually ate the freaking book. Um, I never thought I would ever have to go to the <laughs> library and say, my dog ate my oh, homework. No. And uh, so they told me that you know I could either pay them for it or purchase another copy. So I purchased another copy on Amazon already, but paid the library. Little did I know that they were just going to rip out the first page that said Butler Library and say, here, you can have it. So, <laughs> so I ended up with two copies, one without a cover. Well, consider it a donation to a community <laughs> yeah. institution. Yes. My, um, personal, my, my personal favorite piece of research material is Hustler episode, or volume uh, 423, I think it's uh, November of 1984. Go on. Shannon, Shannon Tweed. Ah. Uh, mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you're, you're talking about a very different kind of research. Okay. We haven't gotten there yet. It's going to tie in. Lots of hair. Lots of hair. You do talk about Hustler. We're probably going to cover Larry Flint at some <laughs> point, but... Well, I'm going to say that is going to tie in with Rasputin at some point. Yeah, that is very true. <laughs> I'm waiting for the Larry Flint Rasputin. But also, um, before we wrap up, uh, also, um, if everybody would please raise your beverages as we offer a final farewell and hail to the great Gandalf the Grey. Oh, oh yes, guys. that happened during our during uh, our great friend Kyle's little buddy, the finest and mightiest of wizard cats. He has become Gandalf the White. He has returned home to the Valar, but. He had a great life. He was very loved and an awesome, awesome. We, we, we will see him wonder. again you, when sir. we sail into the West. Yeah, we'll we see shall. you at the crossroads, buddy. Um, so, yeah, before we wrap up, I want to once again thank our good friend Keith Volhop for joining us for this series. Keith Volhop of the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel. Go out and uh, check that out. It is simply go to www.youtube.com slash Thrifty Whiskey. There is that E in whiskey because this is America. Unless your makers, Mark. Unless your makers, Mark. Yeah. yeah. But they don't have to because they brought their stuff from Scotland. That is true. That There's is your true. fun whiskey fact. And Sorry, uh, Keith. I mowed your lawn on that one. <laughs> if you want to go out and find other stuff on the internet specifically about us, Chris, where can they find it? You can follow us on Twitter at PodcastTRR. You can follow us on Instagram at TRRPod. I just popped up a live picture of Kyle during the recording of this very episode. Uh, you can email us at TRRPod at gmail.com if you have any concerns, any complaints, if you have any suggestions. Uh, if you want to send Padre those fire nudes so that you can put them in the uh, the www www.bobcranesexcult.org? Uh, is it dot org? Dot com. Oh, it's com. It's dot com. It's dot com. Yeah, we're not dot gov. We're not. We're not. Yeah, we're we're not a nonprofit. Uh, right. And I haven't built the school yet, so we're not edu. <laughs> okay. Uh, you can find us on Facebook simply by. Uh, by searching Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And feel free to join the crew, just like Keith did, at patreon.com slash trrpod. And by the way... We haven't started a trrpod only fans yet. We have. You just don't know yet. Oh, like we haven't. Oh, we haven't. So far, I have made zero dollars, but that number is expected to shoot right up. Kyle, how do you think I got the gas money to get up here? That is true. I'm going to start it's a reverse OnlyFans. It's going to be $5 a month for me not to, not to send you naked pictures of myself. <laughs> Seeing the funny papers, I'll be living on some more oh, and Sandy in no time. And one last thing. Uh, since we're doing Rasputin, my cult members that are out there, I just want to let you know, we are in a no-shave zone. <laughs> no shave. 
cocaine and pubes until this series is over. Until you hear the last dongs on the final episode. This is going to take way too long for that to be even remotely okay. Yeah, but I mean, I'm, 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 I'm realistically thinking, looking I'm, at eight weeks. Realistic, <laughs> realistic, about- realistically, I'm looking for, as, as, as his prophet, I'm looking for buckwheat and a leg lock. God damn it, I'm in. <laughs> Fidel Castro eating a London broil. Yeah, exactly. So, God, oh, I just grossed myself out. Anyway, uh, so, God damn it. So, uh, yeah, that's going to do it for this week. Uh, we're coming back next time, of course, with Rasputin Part 2, Grigori in the Big City. And, uh, oh boy, is he going to have some adventures. So, from all of us is here... Is Sarah Jessica I'm, Parker going to be there? Yeah, and that does not gonna, count as a horse joke. I was just gonna, <laughs> it does count as a foot joke, though. Yeah. But, I was just going to ask, like, is, is Carrie going to be involved in this? <laughs> it's just him. It's, but, I mean, hey, you, you make a Cosmo out of vodka, so yeah. it's not... Yeah, we're halfway there. Right. right. So, yeah, from me, Rob, from Chris, from Mike, from Kyle, from Keith Volhop, from the Thrifty Whiskey YouTube channel, thank you, everybody, for listening this week. We'll see you next time. Nazdrovia, everybody. Hold fast.